Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. We're very pleased to have with us today Paul Beaudry, uh, one of the leading experts on Canadian telecommunications. And he's going to be telling us about some of the lessons learned from Canada. Uh, and hopefully we here in the United States will uh, be able to learn from uh, the Canadian experience. Uh, and I'm very eager to hear about the, uh, the developments in the Canadian telecommunications sector. Paul? Thank you very much, Harold. Um, well, um, and thanks to the Hudson Institute for having me today. Very happy to be in Washington, D.C., especially at this time of the year when it starts getting a bit cold up north. Um, just to give you a bit of uh, background information about myself, um, my day job is to be an antitrust lawyer. Essentially what I do is merger control. But I've always had a, a passion for telecom policy, uh, which stems from a year-and-a-half tenure uh, in Canada's Minister of Industry's office in 2006 and 2007. And uh, uh, as a policy advisor to the minister, I took part in, in various reforms that accelerated the deregulation of wireline telephony, which seems very antiquated, considering that uh, not a lot of people are worried about wireline anymore. Uh, but I'm here to talk about wireless, and um, I would call it the crusade of the Canadian government, uh, to bring about a fourth national player in uh, Canada. Just a bit of information about uh, regulation of spectrum in Canada. I know that in the U.S., uh, the licensing uh, of spectrum is, is something under the guise or the, the purview of the FCC, whereas in Canada, it is under the responsibility of Industry Canada and not the CRTC. Um, so the Canadian government, since 2008, um, has had a very interventionist approach to spectrum policy. And um, this all started in 2006, actually, when a government report made by a panel of experts reviewed and analyzed Canada's telecom and regulatory framework and came up with a bunch of recommendations and findings uh, about the sector in Canada. And one of the major findings of that report was that um, competition in the wireless sector was insufficient. Um, so uh, after the publication of the report, the government embarked upon this quest uh, to, to, to find and to, to bring about a fourth player in the wireless market. And this started with a 2008 AWS wireless auction. In the 2008 auction, there was about 90, there was 90 megahertz that were being auctioned off. And the government decided to set aside 40 megahertz for regional and new entrants in the market. So what happened, obviously, the regional players who were already present in the wireless market acquired some spectrum at a rebate, as well as pure play new entrants that just appeared in the market bought spectrum at a significantly, uh, sig significantly reduced rate. And CIBC World Markets evaluates this subsidy at about $617 million, which, you know, with our exchange rates is about $50 US. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so what happened, uh, there were three pure play new entrants that emerged after the AWS auction, uh, Wind Mobile, Mobilicity, and Public Mobile. And, and most of them have not been successful. Public Mobile wasn't profitable and was acquired by TELUS shortly after. Um, Mobilicity filed for bankruptcy in 2013 after a failed attempt by TELUS to acquire it. And Wind Mobile lost its financial backer which is uh, Vimplecom, a company owned by an Egyptian billionaire. Um, so fast forward to 2014. The government was facing a situation where the new entrants that had arrived in the market weren't doing very well. The big three players in Canada, Bell, Telus, and Rogers, still controlled more than 90% of the wireless market. So the government wanted to see what can we do to, to make things work for the new entrants. And it looked south. It looked to the United States. And essentially, before auctioning off the 700 megahertz band, um, officials at Industry Canada came down to Washington and met with officials at Verizon and AT&T in the hopes of convincing them to come to Canada, invest in our networks, and, and take part in the 700 megahertz auction. And essentially, the 700 megahertz auction was structured so that of the four prime blocks of spectrum that were being auctioned off, incumbents could only bid for one, whereas new entrants can bid for up to two uh, blocks of spectrum. Um, but 
Unfortunately for the government, none of the U.S. companies uh, were interested in coming to Canada. Um, so it was left to the remaining new entrants to acquire that spectrum. But the problem was that, Mobilis, uh, that when Mobilicity was under bankruptcy proceedings and did not have any funding to buy that spectrum, and Wind also had no funding. So enters Quebecor, which is the regional cable provider in Quebec. Um, they have mobile service within the province of Quebec, but have never expanded it uh, to other Canadian provinces. And to the Canadian government's delight, they acquired the, set of the, the, the spectrum that had been set aside at a significant rebate. Um, but unfortunately, when, after they acquired it, the CEO of the company said, we don't know what we're going to do with the spectrum yet. We might develop it, but we might also sit on it. And to this date, they've done nothing with it. In 2015, there were two additional spectrum auctions. There was the AWS-3 auction, AWS-3 spectrum being very useful for the deployment of LTE technology. And um, it, luckily, at that time, Win Mobile, which was lacking a financial backer, was able to find one and acquired all the spectrum that had been set aside at the, uh, essentially the reserve price uh, because no other bidders wanted to bid for that spectrum. So essentially, WIND now has a lot of spectrum, but it has not yet been able to become a solidly established player in the three provinces throughout Canada where um, there is a lack of a fourth player, which are Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. And these three provinces account for about 60% of the Canadian population. Um, so the moral of the story, I, I think that the, the, the Canadian example in terms of meddling in the market and handicapping incumbents in the context of spectrum auctions has shown us that it's very difficult for governments to engineer competition in a market. And um, I think that the wireless market over the years has benefited and thrived in an environment where there's been light-handed regulation. And since 2008, the federal government has kind of done the contrary. It's been very interventionist in the hopes of trying to incent, uh, incent the arrival of more players in the market. And I've talked about spectrum set-asides and spectrum caps, but there's also been rules that were established with respect to roaming and tower sharing uh, that made it mandatory for the incumbents to share their networks with um, smaller players in the market, again, in the hopes that the smaller players would be able to benefit from this and, and, and accumulate the necessary capital to build out their own networks in the meantime. But this hasn't worked out very well. Um, in 2007, when I was still at the Minister of Industry's office and we were having preliminary discussions on how to structure the 2008 AWS auction, I was having a debate with a colleague about the apropos of a set-aside. And I thought that instead of having a set-aside, we should simply open up the Canadian market to foreign investors because we have rules in Canada that prevent foreign entities from controlling Canadian carriers that own more than 10% market share of the Canadian market. What does that mean? A foreign investor can own any company in Canada, any carrier in Canada, except for the three big ones, Bell, TELUS, and Rogers. But I think that having a policy agenda that would have prioritized opening up the market rather than micromanaging it probably would have served the Canadian customer much better. So um, I'm going to stop my initial <laughs> comments here, and uh, I'd be happy to take your questions in, in both of Canada's official languages. I'm going to take the moderator's privilege and ask a few questions to begin with. Uh, Paul, you mentioned, uh, if I've got this right, you said there's been a crusade to bring about a fourth company, uh, and also it's difficult to engineer competition. Uh, in the United States, there's been a, I don't know if it's a crusade, but uh, there's a certain theology about a fourth carrier. And uh, the, the federal government, various agencies have said, well, we won't, we'll never go below four. You're an antitrust attorney. Uh, is there something magical about the number four in a market? Is there some reason a market has to have four? It's not five, it's not three, it's four. Um, I've always been puzzled by the assessment that some experts have that four is better than three, and, and you know five presumably would be better than four. Um, I think there's a problem with such an assessment in an industry that's concentrated and that 
is capital intensive, such as the telecommunications <laughs> industry. Um, I, we were talking prior to this event, we were talking about Europe. And um, a lot of people, when they, they talk to me about their issues with Canadian pricing, you know, uh, the prices in Canada are higher than, than, than the prices in, in many European countries, as is the case with the United States. And uh, I think there, there has to be, you know, people point out the number of players in the U.S. market, and the European market, because the European regulators over the years have emphasized the, the need for service-based competition rather than facilities-based competition. And I think that um, competition is much more than a numbers game. And often, you know, the whole idea of perfect competition with a greater number of players has kind of obscured the, the, the need for the telecom sector to be very well financed and capitalized. Um, I tell people in Canada who tell me how they get better deals in Europe that they should not only look at pricing in a silo, but also look at the type of quality of services that we get in Canada. Investments in Canadian networks are significantly higher than they are in, in, in Europe. In Europe, they've been declining over the last 10 years, whereas in Canada, they've been going up. And um, I think the policies that we have to incentivize these investments um, are important too. Um, I would much rather have uh, a sector where you have three strong players delivering innovative services to players than markets where you have a fourth player that might not be very financially strong. And I think there's a tendency when you look across the world that there's been a wave of consolidation in the telecom sector throughout the years. Mm -hmm. A wave of, of countries that have gone from four providers to three providers because um, the market dynamics kind of mandated it. And it's really funny because I remember a few years ago uh, the French socialist minister of the economy, Arnaud de Montebourg, um, was, was, was quoted publicly as saying that the French telecom sector should consolidate because there was too much competition and uh, the prices were so low that people weren't investing more. And, you know, as a free market guy, I don't really care if there's rabid price competition between industries, between companies in an industry, but I don't want the competition to be artificial. And I think that in the name of having more players in the industry, some jurisdictions, like Canada, have tried to bring about what I call artificial competition, which is not market-based, but kind of government-based. And I think this is the wrong way to do things. I assume there are other industries in Canada where uh, the number of competitors is three. And they're probably somewhere it's five. I'm just, right. There isn't some gravitational pull of markets to the number four, is there? No, I mean, if you look at the railway industry, you look at other industries where there's not that many players, I think the reason why the Canadian government's been very intent on making changes in the telecom sector is that it makes for good retail politics. I mean, when you ask people who amongst, you know, who amongst their providers of services they hate the most, often telecom comes close to first. Um, so obviously, I think there was a, a case, at least from a political perspective, for the government to intervene and show consumers that it wanted to take care of them and wanted to make sure that uh, they would be well served by their providers. And, and, you know, some of it is justified. I think everybody has a, sto a horror story involving their telecom carrier. Um, in Canada, one of the big issues lately has been uh, roaming uh, people going to the United States, coming back to Canada, and realizing that they just got a $5,000 bill uh, because they didn't know, but they were actually roaming and obviously with the proliferation of applications on a smartphone, it doesn't take much time for the bill to go up. But it's actually quite interesting because, again, I think the market self-corrects. Uh, lately, ironically enough, uh, Rogers, which is one of the big three companies, came up with a product um, that allows people to roam in the United States for $5 per day and basically use their phone based on the plan they have at home. So the same utilization they can do at home, they can do on foreign soil, same thing in Europe for about $10 a day. So I'm not saying that the government can't have maybe a role to jumpstart these changes in a light-handed way or, or a nudge, as Cass Sunstein would probably say, but I, I, I think that a heavy-handed approach will actually uh, take away incentives to innovate, and, and in a sector as dynamic as telecom, you, you don't want to take away those incentives. Paul, well, you described the uh, kind of the failure of 
the 700 megahertz auction and right. the AWS 3 auction where there was a lot of economic engineering, social engineering, efforts to try to structure the auction a certain way. Uh, we in the United States are certainly not immune to these tendencies to want to try to structure auctions in a certain way and have certain spectrum set aside. Um, uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, what the expectations were going into those auctions and, and kind of what happened and, and how that translated into uh, what the expectations of the auction receipts would be and then what they actually turned out to be. How big of a failure were these? Um, well, I, I think that if you spoke to somebody within the federal government, uh, they would probably contend that the, the aggressive interventionist agenda was necessary to bring about additional players in the market. And they would probably point out to Win Mobile, which is the last standing pure play new entrant, which does have a chance of survival and could potentially establish itself as a viable fourth player. Um, the, the, I mean, I, I think what's difficult when you evaluate these policies is what would have happened if, if they had not occurred. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you could have had a scenario where um, a player, um, a regional player, for instance, would have taken the initiative to buy some spectrum, even under you know, uh, free auctions without any type of handicapping of incumbents would have taken uh, the opportunity to expand as a fourth player if, if, if market conditions kind of made it profitable. But it was interesting because in the 2008 auction, uh, one of the big cable players in Canada, Shaw Cable, uh, bought Spectrum uh, in the context of that auction, and they never ended up deploying it. And, and essentially, they, they made this public by saying, we just don't see the economic case to do so. And again, I think you have to remember that Canada is the second largest country in the world after Russia, even though our population is kind of spread out in a small band of 200 miles near the border. It's still a pretty large piece of land, and, and building and deploying these networks costs astronomical <laughs> amounts of money. So you can't have 12 players who are going to find the capital necessary to invest in these types of infrastructure. So you know, I think that... Although the objective that the government was pursuing was, was perhaps noble, bringing more players to the game, I think there should have been a bit more questioning at the beginning by, by asking ourselves, do we really need a fourth player? And, and could a fourth player really be viable? I mean, you look at the U.S. very well-financed players in the U.S. who said, no, thank you. When the government came to them and said, said to them, you'll, you'll get Spectrum for almost nothing. And very well-oiled players like Verizon and AT&T said, eh, you know what, we'll, we'll, we won't participate. So how can a small win mobile become a successful player? And I wish them luck, but how can they become a very successful player when much more uh, able and well-organized entities have kind of looked at the opportunity and said, no thanks, I'm skeptical. The next auction coming up in the United States is uh, for 600 megahertz right. on uh, return broadcast spectrum. Um, tell us about what is going on in Canada with respect to 600 megahertz. Uh, is there an auction schedule for 600 megahertz? Well, there will be an auction, which will take place after the U.S. auction, because typically that's how we work in Canada. We see what goes on in the United States, and then we proceed with our own um, auctions. Um, the government or Industry Canada released a consultation paper in December 2014 kind of laying out a few of the ideas that we're looking at in terms of, of the auction. Um, unlike the United States auction, there won't be any incentive auctions in Canada. Um, I, th I think it's a much more top-down approach where they, they've informed the over-the-air broadcasters that they would probably all be affected. And I think the idea is obviously to tighten up the, the channels at the lower frequencies and liberate some of the higher frequencies um, question that we have in Canada and that the government hasn't really responded to is whether um, there will be some kind of compensation mechanism. I understand that in the United States um, there will be, first of all, the reverse auction revenues that broadcasters will be able to, to get. And in addition to this, I think there's a $1.75 billion fund that was set up by Congress right. to top up any revenues that they'll make through the re reverse auction process. There's been no mechanism set forth in Canada so um, I don't know if there's going to be any process set up in the near future 
to figure out how this will be uh, accomplished. But uh, uh, you know, we were talking about coordination between Canada and the U.S. just before entering this room. And uh, I, frankly, I, I really don't know where Industry Canada is at in the whole negotiation process with the FCC in terms of seeing how we're going to coordinate um, uh, uh, the, the, the process in the U.S. as well as the process in Canada. Because obviously, it might be a little tougher and less attractive for U.S. telcos to bid for Spectrum if they know that there's going to be an issue when you arrive at the New York level and want to go up because there's channels in Canada and Montreal and Toronto that haven't done the transition yet. This is a very important point, Paul, <laughs> uh, because American wireless companies are being asked to invest tens of billions of dollars in Spectrum to provide wireless broadband services. And some of that's really is contingent on uh, clearing broadcasters out of these bands of Spectrum because broadcasters operate at a much higher power level. They would blow off any wireless service operator in the same uh, channel. Um, and so just as someone who follows the industry, you're not aware in Canada of any uh, imminent plan for Canadian broadcasters to vacate, say, channels 39 to 54. This is not something that is widely being discussed in Canada right now. I don't think we're there yet. I think there's been a very big-picture consultation paper issued by Industry Canada, mm -hmm. and, and they're still at the consultation level. And uh, in terms of anything concrete, I think we'll have to wait a little bit more. I love consultation papers. <laughs> yeah, agree to meet in nice places. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Where's, where's good this year? Um, I've got a thousand other questions. I'm going to get to some of those later. Let's open it up, open up the floor. We have a question here. Please, we're going to bring a microphone around and please identify yourself and ask your question. And for those of you who are watching online, uh, what is our best Twitter handle today? At Hudson Events. So please send your questions in and uh, we will get them asked. Yes. Hi. Um, not so much of a question, just wanted to actually provide a very quick clarification. I'm Steve Dier. I'm actually Industry Canada representative here at the uh, Embassy in Washington. Hi, Paul. I haven't met you oh. yet, but look forward to speaking after perhaps. Um, I just want on the last point in terms of 600 megahertz. Uh, um, cooperation between Can uh, the FCC and Industry Canada, uh, we actually did sign a statement of intent uh, with the FCC that's publicly available, so you can find it uh, on our website and the FCC website as well, uh, outlining our coordination along the border uh, to ensure that we've cleared enough spectrum um, in both countries that makes this a viable auction. So I, I encourage you and everybody here to, uh, to check that out, and if you'd like, come see me afterwards, and I can make sure I send you the link. Great. Could you tell us about the timing on that? When will Spectrum in Canada be cleared, roughly? Um, as Paul said, it's, it, the exact timeline isn't set out yet, but we are going to first um, allow the, uh, reverse, the reverse part of the incentive auction to take place in the U.S., um, and then it's, uh, it's a little technical. I'm a lawyer, not an engineer, so I can't make too much sense of the, uh, the, uh, the technical aspect of it. But um, there, there, there is a, a, a formula for how we're going to match up and when the repacking uh, uh, process occurs in between the two auctions that the FCC is running. And I'm sorry to be asking you questions. It should be the other way around, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm truly fascinated by it. But um, is there a mechanism to compensate the Canadian broadcasters for the relocation costs? Um, currently, there hasn't been an announcement on that, um, so it's uh, not something that I, I that I can answer at this point. But uh, it is an ongoing uh, an ongoing discussion. Right. Question here in the front. Hi, my name is Claude Olivier from American Enterprise. So there's an election coming up. What have some of the other parties said about this? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's actually not been an issue that's been widely discussed during the election campaign, which I consider to be uh, half surprising because, again, I was talking about, I think, one of the major impetus for, for, for the conservative government um, going forward we, with these reforms 
was that they had a populist appeal. And um, I've reviewed a lot of what's been going on during the campaign. It hasn't, be a, it hasn't been an issue that's been up front and center in the campaign. Um, I don't know if you've looked at what's been going on in Canada, but one of the big issues that, that's been consuming the campaign has been the issue of the kneecap, the headscarf that's being worn by some uh, Muslim ladies at citizenship ceremonies. And that's occupied a lot of the airwaves over the last couple of weeks. Um, but as I was saying, surprisingly, um, the telecom issues in general haven't been uh, discussed in, in great lengths uh, during the campaign, which surprises me because I think that despite whatever I might think about these policies, um, they did resonate with, with a portion of the Canadian population. Paul, historically, has telecommunications been a uh, partisan issue in, in Canada? Not really. And, and I, I think that when you look at the debates that have been going on with respect to telecom policy in Canada, it's mostly amongst experts or scholars or, or people like this. And it's very rare that there has been significant debates about um, the, the, the specific programs that the, the current government, at least, has implemented. Obviously, uh, when I was talking about foreign investment, that would be a touchy issue. When the government partially liberalized the sector in 2012, it ruffled the feathers of a few people who, um, I would say, economic nationalists who, who probably feared that we were opening the doors to eventually having uh, foreign players taking control of our industry. But up to now, we haven't really seen much in terms of results, uh, uh, luckily or unluckily. Uh, but you know, foreign investment is always a, a, a touchy issue. I, th I think Canadians historically have always feared that American companies might come over and control their, their essential services. Uh, but I think that's why the government took a, a, bit, a bit of a progressive approach by saying we'll liberalize partially by allowing the ownership of co companies that are relatively small, but keep the crown jewels uh, Canadian-owned and controlled. Is the fear heavily about America, uh, because two of our four largest wireless carriers are majority owned by foreign corporations. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure too many Americans are terribly focused on it. Uh, but is, is there a big fear of foreign ownership in uh, telecommunications in Canada? Well, I, I think it's interesting. I, I would go beyond telecommunications. Um, th there has been heightened fears of foreign ownership in certain other sectors, principally the natural resources sector in Canada, um, especially when it comes to state-owned enterprises. This government has adopted a policy basically saying that uh, since the acquisition of um, Nexon, which is an oil, oil patch company that was involved in the oil sands sector in Alberta, um, no state-owned enterprises, uh, there would be a presumption that any acquisition uh, in the oil sands sector by uh, a state-owned enterprise, uh, you know, especially geared towards China, would not be in the net benefit of Canada. Essentially, we have a, a law called the Investment Canada Act, which essentially allows the government to determine if a foreign investor coming to Canada is making an investment that will be of net benefit to Canada. And essentially what happens is the government has to make an assessment on this. So obviously I think that if a foreign player even if we um, opened up the telecom sector completely, I would, I, I would, I would assume that if uh, a country, you know, an investor came from a foreign country that wasn't maybe at the top of our mind in terms of the best global citizen in terms of security or spying issues, um, there might be some high chances that the government would, would block the transaction. And there's actually been an interesting um, precedent um, uh, a company called Allstream in Manitoba that was owned by MTS, Manitoba Telecom Services. I think it was in 2013, um, a company called Accelero wanted to acquire uh, Allstream. And Accelero was ultimately owned by a company called Vimplecom, which, funnily enough, used to be the majority controller of WinMobile. Um, and the acquisition of Allstream was blocked by the federal government for what, what we largely expected to be national security reasons. And um, um, as I was saying before, uh, you know, th th there, was, there, was, th there appeared to be some national security concerns with the ultimate owner of Accelero, which, by the way, is the operator of the only telecom, the, wireless, the only wireless telecom network in, in North Korea, 
that might have been something that might have had something to do and the reason why the deal was was turned down rejected by the government has there been uh, much interest in uh, Canadian telecom companies making investments in the United States not really I don't, I don't think it's been much on their radar uh, mm -hmm. not to my knowledge uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting because people have often wondered whether any of the big three would, would branch out somewhere. But I, I don't think there's, a, well, to my knowledge, I don't think there's huge plans to develop outside of the national boundaries. Next question from the audience. Yeah. Uh, wait, let's wait for the microphone area. Yeah. Ariel Roth, Hudson Institute. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Canada's typically followed the U.S. in crafting its auction rules. Um, we've waited to see what the U.S. has chosen to do before um, setting up our auction, Canada's auction procedures. I was wondering if, uh, I know that this discussion is about um, uh, wireless spectrum, but can we expect uh, Canada to mirror uh, U.S.-style net neutrality rules um, and uh, to regulate the internet as a, as a public utility? Interesting question. Uh, I think you know, my understanding from, from, from the net neutrality proceedings in the States is that I feel like it's, there was a big splash when um, Chairman Wheeler announced uh, the, the net neutrality decision about, uh, relating to Title II. I think in Canada we have implemented net neutrality principles and the way the CRTC looks at issues, but it's been done in a more subtle fashion. Um, there, there have been decisions made by the CRTC that although they don't, um, they're not necessarily advertised as big picture net neutrality decisions. Uh, they still embrace these type of principles. I'll, I'll give you one example. There was a CRTC decision um, earlier this year, which I think um, prohibits um, carriers from offering applications to their subscribers uh, when the, the online content that they offer is not available to um, other subscribers that are not with the, the, the carrier in question. So in this case, um, you know, you might call this net neutrality. Essentially, the CRTC said it had to be uh, available to other, to other, uh, other non-subscribers. There's another decision where the CRTC essentially also relating to the use of apps. And essentially, the CRTC told carriers that they couldn't adopt a model where they wouldn't charge their own subscribers for the data they use when they use certain apps. Um, and they had to use a uniform approach when, uh, when billing people for the use of their apps, right? So you can't have a, a, a situation where you have a particular app, and if you're a Rogers subscriber, for instance, you won't have to pay for data when you use that app. The CRDC said, no, you can't do this. You can't privilege one type of people in contrast to others. So I, I think the, the big I think the big takeaway from this is, although I mean the CRTC didn't probably uh, come up with a decision that bears the name net neutrality decision, they still do incorporate elements of net neutrality and the principles that are driven by net neutrality in, in, in many of its decisions. Well, that's that's fascinating. Uh, this has become a big issue in the United States. Um, Many, if not all, of the major carriers have agreements with various sites to provide services either without having a data charge. So T-Mobile has some with some of the music sites you can go to, and right. it won't count against your uh, right. monthly allotment. Uh, and these actually are being challenged under the net neutrality right. rules. Right. Uh, and is this kind of is this settled law in Canada that that's just illegal? Well, I, I, w I wouldn't say illegal. I, I, I think that the CRTC recently, you know, it's under development, but the CRTC has recently said that these arrangements cannot stand. So um, actually, you know, it's pretty established right now that, that companies have actually modified their practices in light of this recent CRTC decision I was alluding to. So I, w I thought that was interesting because I think the decision came out shortly after there had been the Title II announcement. And I thought to myself, it's interesting how the Title II is making a huge flap in the United States, whereas in Canada, very more subtly, these principles are already incorporated in the way that the CRTC analyzes uh, public policy issues. 
What's the litigation environment? That's an interesting I, aspect because I was going to say that I was going to say that um, the environment in Canada is much less litigious than it is in the United States. Um, I, I feel like there's much more of a what I say cooperative approach when it comes to how parties interact with the regulator. And uh, I, I've heard a few of my American friends come to Canada and say, "Well." You know, we don't agree with such a decision. We take it to court right away. Yeah. Whereas in Canada, it's probably not the way to do things. And, and a lot of U.S. people who arrive in the Canadian telecom sector and who try to adapt themselves, I mean, they, they find the, the, the whole process of familiarizing themselves with this whole environment much different. We are much less litigious in that regard than, than U.S. telcos, for instance. Is that, right? yeah. is, that, is that cultural? Is this just the mild-mannered Canadian? Or is this... <laughs> Part of the legal structure that the likelihood of success is zero, uh, that you, the, the courts would not uh, side against uh, the government on anything of importance? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. I, I would tend to think that the courts may defer. I mean, there's really not that many cases that go, you know, in Canada it would be the federal court mm-hmm. once there's an appeal of a CRTC decision. And I'd be interested in looking at the record of companies who have contested some CRTC decisions, I probably wouldn't, you know, I, I haven't looked at it, but I don't think it would necessarily be great. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it, I would say that it's, it's true, though, that there's much less of a tendency for companies to, uh, to litigate or even threaten litigation. Um, there was uh, uh, an important transaction in Canada a couple of years back when Bell Canada acquired Astral. Astral was a big content provider based in Quebec, and the transaction was initially turned down by the CRTC or, or blocked by the CRTC uh, because essentially when the CRTC reviews um, a proposed acquisition, it's probably similar to the FCC, they have to make kind of a net benefit assessment and see what, what is this merger going to do for the broadcasting world in general. And their initial assessment was negative, so they blocked it. Um, and uh, I know that there was very bad blood between... Uh, the, the parties mm. and the CRTC after this initial decision because I think the parties were, were under the impression that under, under the existing CRTC framework to evaluate whether a transaction was positive or negative, they, they passed muster. The CRTC ended up turning them down. But um, I, I think that e- even, even then when there was thoughts about going to litigation, and it, you know, what, what ended up happening is that this, the transaction was resubmitted to the CRTC with a better package, and the CRTC ended up approving it. Um, but it was interesting because I, I think that if you had a situation like this occur in the United States, you know, it would have been rapid litigation with, uh, with, with you know, it probably would have been, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it would have been litigated. Maybe it would have, maybe parties would have dropped. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when, I mean, as a, as a competition lawyer, when, the regulator wants to block a transaction, often the party will, the parties, I mean, it's very rare. Typically, there's undertakings and the parties agree to divest certain assets or certain, certain parts of their business. But when, when the regulator, in the rare cases where the regulator wants to block a transaction altogether, there's very little incentive to take this to the courts because it'll take forever. And, and when the whole issue gets figured out, <laughs> it's been too long and the parties don't want to be involved anymore. But... Uh, um, Definitely less, less litigious in, in Canada than the U.S. On mergers, in the U.S., we have this dual parallel system where we have both the formal antitrust review by right. the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, and then there's this separate review by the regulator, the Federal Communications Commission. Is there a, a dual review in Canada, or is it uh, just one federal agency that reviews a merger? There is a dual review. So, so when you have a transaction involving, for instance, a broadcasting undertaking, you'd have the Competition Bureau, which is the equivalent of the FTC or, or the DOJ's antitrust division, reviewing the transaction from a purely competition law perspective. Um, and you'd have the, reg- the, the telecom broadcasting regulator, the CRTC, reviewing the transaction uh, based on the criteria laid out in the Broadcasting Act. Um, obviously, there is some collaboration and communication between the two regulators, but their reviews are, are independent, and they make their own assessment. Uh, so, and it makes for a bit of a, I mean, it's probably the same thing in the U.S., but sometimes it creates a lot of stress because you have 
the two processes that go along at the same time. And sometimes the advocacy for one piece is not the same advocacy you want to put forward for the other regulator because there's other considerations. Right. So um, there's always a bit of a, a challenge, and you know, especially in terms of coordination also. Uh, but that's, that's part of the game. We have a question from Tom Struble via Twitter, and the question is, the Canadian cable operator who bought the Spectrum but didn't put it to use sounds a lot like DISH. DISH is the American right. satellite company. Are there build-out requirements for Spectrum licenses in Canada as there are in the United States, or can someone hold Spectrum indefinitely without developing it? No, th there, there are build-out requirements, and... Um, and essentially, I mean, I, I don't know the exact time frame. For some of the auctions, I think it was a 10-year obligation, but I, I don't remember exactly what were the time frames. Um, uh, what's going to be interesting to, to see in the coming years is a lot of the parties that acquired Spectrum that was set aside or the subject of Spectrum cats during auctions, what are they going to do with it? Um, I was talking about Quebecor, which was able to acquire Spectrum at, um, at reserve prices during some of the auctions. And Quebecor, again, is, is, is a Quebec, broad, uh, you know, Quebec broadband player that recently started offering wireless service you know, from a facilities-based perspective. Before the 2008 auction, they were an MVNO buying their minutes off Rogers. Um, but recently, they've announced that uh, they were not interested in deploying any network infrastructure in Ontario, Alberta, and BC, uh, areas in which they own Spectrum. So the question is, what are they going to do with it? Will, be, will they be selling it to wind? That could be possible. Um, would there be a potential alliance between them and wind to build network infrastructure in those provinces? Mm -hmm. It's also possible. Um, uh, which kind of brings me to something else that I wanted to talk about is the uh, spectrum transfer uh, framework that Industry Canada uh, has put forward. Essentially, the, there's a framework whereby... Um, Industry Canada doesn't want, or, or essentially um, doesn't want any uh, spectrum transfers that could lead to increased concentration in the market. So that led Industry Canada to block um, tra uh, transactions involving incumbents wanting to acquire some of the smaller players. So I was talking about Mobilicity before. Uh, they filed for bankruptcy after Industry Canada refused to have TELUS buy them, essentially because they didn't want TELUS, one of the three incumbents, to have more spectrum. Um, Recently, Rogers was allowed to acquire Mobilicity in exchange for giving Wind certain Spectrum licenses that it didn't use. And essentially the purpose is we don't want the incumbents to have any more Spectrum uh, outside of the traditional auction processes. Um, and I, it was initially troublesome because I think Wind Mobile mm -hmm. had Spectrum across the country. And there's some Spectrum that it wanted to get rid of uh, in order to concentrate on the three provinces that lack a fourth well-established player. And I think initially they had some issues in getting approval to sell some of that unused spectrum to the bigger players. But uh, recently, uh, Industry Canada approved a sale of, of some of that spectrum to Rogers and some of that spectrum also to some of the regional companies in the provinces in which Wynn didn't want to operate who uh, also acquired that spectrum uh, from them. So I, I think there's, there's a recognition... Um, at Industry Canada that they have to allow these transfers to occur, especially when the transfers are, are useful to the smaller players who need much, much, much necessary capital to deploy their spectrum in their areas of primary operations. What's the usual time period for uh, a review of a transfer spectrum? Is it, uh, does it differ depending on the size of the companies involved, or is it fairly routine? Um, well, I, I think the, you know, what I've heard recently is that a lot of the processes were um, uh, initially, I think, some of the communications with Industry Canada were, were not necessarily public. I don't think it necessarily takes that much time. It, it really depends on the transaction. The moment there's one of the incumbents involved, I think there's going to be a, a more mm -hmm. thorough assessment by Industry Canada on how they can try to offset any increased concentration and how, I mean, in the Rogers case, uh, they were able to find some unused spectrum that they gave to another new entrant. Uh, uh, so so I, I think in these cases, they try to find ways to, to, to sort this out. Because initially, what had happened is that after the 2008 AWS auction, 
there was a prohibition on uh, spectrum transfers within the initial period of the license. And that was extended afterwards by the government saying, we, we don't only want this to be in place for the first couple of years uh, of, of, of you obtaining the spectrum. We want this to be relatively permanent. That's what the situation is for now. Questions from the audience? Here in the front. I worked in the, in the Reagan administration in the White House uh, oh. Counsel's Office. And uh, during the Reagan administration, of course, we were fairly wide open with investment in the United States. And I think that's a continued. And I recall an issue uh, where there were a foreigner wanted to buy the Empire State Building, and there was a huge hue and cry about right. you know, selling this. And the attitude of the Reagan administration was, they're not going to move it out of the United States. Right. And if they don't right. take care of it, the tenants are going to move out. Right. And uh, so why is, why, is, why is Canada more restrictive in the foreign investment uh, than the U.S.? I can see in your, in your security industries uh, you want to be, but other industries, why, I mean, why aren't you wide open as the U.S. is in, in, in anybody investing in the country? Because if, if they don't improve the asset, that's, that's going to die. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with your assessment. I, I think that in Canada, there's always been a bit of nationalistic sensibility of, of having foreign investors come in because it's largely seen to be the United States, right? We're, we're a small country. We're about you know, 37, 38 million people. And we've got this behemoth south of the border with a huge population and a huge basin of capital. And... Um, uh, I think there's always been a preoccupation that uh, that uh, there, there'd be some kind of invasion where <laughs> the, the main industries would be all controlled by foreigners. Um, I, I, I take your point with respect to the assets not getting out of the United States or getting out of Canada. Uh, there's, there was an interesting transaction a few years back um, involving a company in Saskatchewan called Potash Corp. And uh, Potash was the subject of, a, of an offer, uh, I think it was a hostile offer from BHP Billiton, is an Australian company. And um, I mean, we hear a lot of investments by state-owned enterprises from China, and obviously there's, there, there are a lot of security issues involved with these investments. But that was an investment from an Australian company uh, in, a, in a company that owned natural resources that would never leave Canada, right? They're in the ground. Um, and, and there was a big outcry from the provincial government in Saskatchewan there was a fear that uh, you know, there might be loss of jobs, there might be loss of investments in the community, and, and there was just this, this feeling that this was a Canadian asset and needed to remain Canadian. I, I can't really say there's a lot of rationality in that necessarily, but what ended up happening is, is um, the federal government ended up blocking the transaction um, because, again, uh, under the Investment Canada Act, you, you need to make a finding that the investment is, is, is of net benefit to Canada. If you, if, you, if you don't make that finding, uh, you can justify your decision to block the investments. But, you know, obviously I'm talking about a few examples here. The vast majority of investments into Canada are, are accepted, are, are approved, are cleared. Uh, but there are some few, a few little transactions like this which once in a while are blocked. There was another one a, a bit earlier than, than, um, than the potash transaction which involved um, McDonald Detweiler. Uh, acquiring, uh, there was an acquisition of a company in Canada that essentially manufactured the, the an aerospace, the, what we call the Canada Arm, which is an aerospace device, and I, I don't know the details of it, but essentially this one also was blocked. Because I, I think there's, you know, th- there might be some logical economic reasons to it, but I think there's also, um, there's also a bit of passion involved uh, when, when some companies that are seen as the, the crown jewels of Canadian society are, are being sold off. Um, you know, and obviously politicians listen to their constituents. Uh, in the potash transaction example, I think the vast majority of the Saskatchewan population was completely outraged by this transaction. So um, it kind of laid the groundwork for, for the politicians uh, putting their, their foot down and, and blocking it. But, you know, I mean, uh, mentalities might evolve. You never know. Um, I think in a lot of sectors we've liberalized with time. Um, and... Uh, Maybe telecom is the next off the bat. I mean, there's, there's been a partial liberalization, and uh, uh, at some point, one government might have the, uh, the guts to, uh, to go the, full, uh, the full, uh, <laughs> full span and liberalize the entire sector and 
put our three big players off the selling block. Yeah, they should. They should think about the consumer also. The purchaser is going to give a different, and a better product to the consumer. That should be a right. Absolutely, and I think you know when you when you look at telecom more specifically, I think one of the the the, the the rationales for intervening and the series of interventions we've seen in the market has been the consumer interest. And, and obviously the government's been trumpeting its commitment to the consumer when it's been implementing these reforms. And uh, I think that often they, they've, done, they've done complicated it with something that could, could have been done in, more, in a more simple, simple fashion. And, and you're right. Sometimes a foreign investor, a well-financed foreign investor, uh, you know, could bring much more discipline on markets than any type of government-engineered uh, uh, entity uh, uh, that would emerge in the market. Well, we're not immune in the United States from uh, our own xenophobias and uh, our fear of uh, certain foreign investors as well. Um, could you tell us a bit, you, you mentioned earlier the uh, uh, Canadian uh, roaming agreements and the tower sharing. Right. Um, I'm fascinated to, to learn whether there have been any studies of whether those decisions led to any uh, uh, reduction in investment in uh, tower equipment or network equipment in terms of roaming. I'm not aware of any studies specifically relating to Canada with respect to these policies. I, I think um, essentially what happened, as, as, as I was saying, when we had the AWS auction, Along with the spectrum set aside, the government imposed mandatory power sharing and roaming uh, on the bigger companies so that the new players could start developing their own infrastructure. I think historically there, there's a lot of research that proves that a heavy-handed approach to regulation in the telecom sector will have, you know, in general, uh, a negative impact on investment. Has it had a tremendously negative impact on investments in Canada? I'm not sure. Maybe at the margin. Uh, but I, I think there are some other policies that might be a little more risky. I mean, uh, there's, there's, um, there was a recent hearing of the CRTC relating to um, high-speed Internet, the next-generation networks, and whether you mandate the sharing of those networks, right? Um, I think policies like that uh, probably have a, a very bad impact on investment when you impose the sharing of the next generation of networks, which cost billions of dollars to develop, to, to, to implement and deploy, um, such policies have a negative impact on investment. And, and um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you have the same types of debates in the United States in terms oh, yes. of mandatory access to, to these networks, but there's always a class of people. I mean, it's a funny story, right? There used to be the dial-up internet, and the people who provided that service were kind of out of a job when cable arrived, right. and they've kind of been latching on to the big players since then, offering, basically reselling their, their services. And um, the big question that, that we have now is when you have networks that are incredibly costly to develop, like fiber to the home, are you giving these guys the same benefits that they used to have under the old networks? And if you do, what will be the impact on competition or what will be the impact on the rate of investment? Obviously, if you're talking about the downtown core, companies will probably still have the incentive to go into the downtown areas and invest tons of money to build out the fiber-to-the-home networks. But will they have the same incentives to do so in rural and remote areas? If the moment the network is built, they've got to share it with their competitors right. who don't have to put a penny in infrastructure spending or significant infrastructure spending. I'm highly skeptical of that. What is the industry structure in Canada for towers in the U.S. over the past... 15, 20 years, it's migrated to a, a separate industry. Right. Uh, That's not the case in Canada. So it's still owned by the it's carriers. It's still owned by the carriers, which, which is why you have these tower-sharing policies, right? And why, and, why we don't. Because exactly. You've got independent owners. And, uh, no, the, 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 and I don't know what accounts for this difference in market structure, Canada versus U.S., but uh, in Canada, it's always been the, the carriers who've, uh, who've held control over those towers. And in the U.S., if I understand correctly, it's kind of migrated from the carriers to yes. independent owners, right? Fifteen years ago, it was all owned by the carriers. Now it's right. majority owned by independent companies. There's still some 
And do we know the rationale that, that pushed the carriers to uh, sell their towers to end up, I mean, I think it was or? I think it was efficiencies. Right. I think that uh, the towers were never the central asset or the central business of the carriers, and I think they recognized they weren't necessarily very good at it. Right. And some independent company that could actually be quite more efficient at it. Right. Um, well, we typically do things later than the U.S., so it might happen. <laughs> Question here, up front. Hi, thank you. I'm Katie McAuliffe, Americans for Tax Reform, Digital Liberty. Um, I just want some clarification really quick in this back and forth right here. It was very interesting. So when we're talking about building new networks and then we're talking about riders slash special access, I suppose, do you all focus more on, if you were to say, trying to get more infrastructure put out so that each entity has their own infrastructure or is there more focus on getting entities to share infrastructure? And if we are sharing infrastructure, is the government putting in a backstop saying this is the rate that you will pay in order to ride on someone's infrastructure? Or is there some combination? Right. Well, I mean, I mean, you're describing the two types of competition there are out there. There is, I mean, there's the facilities-based competition whereby people build their own infrastructure and develop it and, and compete. And there's, there's a service-based competition where governments will impose sharing obligations on the owner of the infrastructure and allow people to access whether it's all or part of the network mm -hmm. uh, of, of an incumbent and compete maybe on price or, or quality of service and, and things of the sort. Um, I mean, there's, there's, I think in both countries there's been um, policies that have been implemented favoring one or the other at different mm -hmm. times. Um, my general approach on this is that um, I, I believe that facilities-based competition should be privileged in opposition to service-based competition. I think you really have, um, you know, you really benefit from competition when you have real competition, i.e. players building out their own infrastructure mm -hmm. and competing with others who have to build their own infrastructure also, which doesn't mean that you can't have voluntary agreements amongst players. I mean, there are some voluntary agreements between companies who become MVNOs, for instance, MVNOs being those entities that basically sell, you know, you know will buy bulk minutes from a, a big player and, and resell them under a, their own brand. And that's kind of what, that, I guess that's really where I'm getting at right. is that, so for, for us on special access rates, there's right. this government backstop right. that says you have to apply it this way. And it sounds like you're getting more at a free market approach where the right. companies negotiate with each other. Exactly. And I, okay. th I think often when you, when you discuss these concepts, it's, you know, I think there are virtues to facilities-based competition mm -hmm. over service space. But in a world where you have limited government intervention, you can certainly have commercial agreements between companies, uh, and, and these have worked time and time again. And so, so you're, you're saying that in Canada, these basically doing agreements and negotiations amongst companies without the government getting involved is um, working just fine? Uh, well, well what, what I would tell you is uh, I, I, would, I was more telling you this from a vantage point of what should be rather than what is. Okay. <laughs> um, so then what is? There, there, are, you know, there are various policies in Canada that... Um, that do impose access to incumbent networks. Um, I was talking about the internet, for instance, where um, when, you know, and particularly, I think that's where you really feel the negative impact of sharing policies is when you have companies investing in new generation networks and they have to invest billions and billions of dollars to build out these networks. If the moment the, net the network is built, you slap an obligation on them Mm -hmm. to share the network at a regulated rate. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, if they want to share the network at commercially uh, arrived upon on rates, that's fine. But if the government imposes a rate structure that essentially uh, makes this a less attractive investment, well, the customer loses, even though the government might say, well, it's good because you'll have more players to choose from. But the unseen aspect of this story is that, you know, there's, there's foregone investments in the picture. And again, as I was saying... It might not necessarily be investments in the big centers, but the person who will suffer from this is the person living in a rural and remote area okay. who won't get the network as soon as he or she should have had if there were no such policies in place. And so final question, I'm so uh, sorry. Um, for the way you all have, have it set up, are these set at the 
central government or is it done in the provinces? Do they have their own set up for how rate regulation, special access? Right. So telecommunications is a, is a federal jurisdiction. Um, it's entirely done by the federal government. Um, obviously, there's always issues relating to um, powers, which you probably have powers. here. where the Rights of way. Exactly, rights of way, negotiations with provincial and municipal governments uh, regarding that. But um, um, it's, you know, telecom is, a, is an entirely federal jurisdiction, although my, my home province of Quebec has long uh, wanted to, to get a bit of jurisdiction in that area. As you know, Quebec is, it's, is, a, is a creature of its own, uh, constantly wanting more, more, more jurisdictions and more, more competences given to them from the federal government. <laughs> Other questions? If not, please join me in thanking Paul for a delightful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs>